Book four, part two of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume two, part two. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume two, part two by Francois René de Chateaubriand. Translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book four, part two. This so affecting and quite admirable letter is the last which I received. It alarmed me through the increase of sadness of which it bears the impress. I hurried to the Dame Saint-Michel. My sister was walking in the garden with Madame de Navarre. She went in when she knew that I had gone up to her room. She made visible efforts to collect her ideas, and at intervals she had a slight convulsive movement of the lips. I entreated her to return entirely to reason, to cease writing such unjust things to me, things that rent my heart, to cease thinking that I could ever grow weary of her. She appeared to grow a little calmer at the words which I repeated to distract and console her. She told me that she believed that the convent was doing her harm, that she would feel better living alone in the neighbourhood of the Jardin des Plantes, there where she could see doctors and walk about. I urged her to please her own taste, adding that in order to help Virginie, her maid, I would give her old Saint-Germain. This proposal seemed to give her great pleasure in memory of Madame de Beaumont, and she assured me that she would go to look out for her new lodging. She asked me how I was thinking of spending the summer. I said that I should go to Vichy to join my wife, and then to Monsieur Joubert at Villeneuve, to return to Paris from there. I suggested to her to accompany us. She answered that she wished to spend the summer alone, and that she was going to send Virginie back to Fougères. I left her. She was more at ease. Madame de Chateaubriand left for Vichy, and I prepared to follow her. Before leaving Paris, I went again to see Lucille. She was affectionate. She spoke to me of her little writings. I encouraged the great poet to work, she kissed me, wished me a good journey, made me promise to come back soon. She saw me to the landing of the staircase, leant over the baluster, and quietly watched me go down. When I reached the bottom I stopped, and lifting my head, cried to the unhappy woman who was still looking at me, Farewell, dear sister. I shall see you soon. Take great care of yourself. Write to me at Villeneuve. I will write to you. I hope that next winter you will agree to live with us. That evening I saw the worthy Saint-Germain. I gave him orders and some money, so that he might secretly reduce the prices of anything she might require. I enjoined him to keep me informed of everything, and not to fail to call me back, in case he should want to see me. Three months passed. When I reached Villeneuve, I found two fairly tranquillizing letters about Madame de Caux's health, but Saint-Germain forgot to speak to me of my sister's new lodging. I had begun to write her a long letter, when suddenly Madame de Chateaubriand fell dangerously ill. I was at her bedside when I was brought a new letter from Saint-Germain. I opened it. A withering line told me of the sudden death of Lucille. I have cared for many tombs in my life. It fell to my lot and to my sister's destiny that her ashes should be flung to the skies. I was not in Paris when she died. I had no relations there. Kept at Villeneuve by my wife's critical condition, I was unable to go to the sacred remains. Orders sent from a distance arrived too late to prevent a common burial. Lucille knew no one and had not a friend. She was known only to Madame de Beaumont's old servant. It was as though he had been charged to link two destinies. He alone followed the forsaken coffin, and he himself was dead before Madame de Chateaubriand's sufferings allowed me to bring her back to Paris. My sister was buried among the poor. In what graveyard was she laid? In what motionless wave of an ocean of dead was she swallowed up? In what house did she die after leaving the community of the Dame de Saint-Michel? If by making researches, if by examining the archives of the municipalities, the registers of the parishes, 
I should come across my sister's name, what would that avail me? Should I find the same keeper of the cemetery? Should I find the man who dug a grave that remained nameless and unlabelled? Would the rough hands that were the last to touch so pure a clay have remembered it? What nomenclator of the shades could point out to me the obliterated tomb? Might he not make a mistake as to the dust? Since heaven has willed it so, let Lucille be for ever lost. I find in this absence of locality a distinction from the burials of my other friends. My predecessor in this world and in the next is praying to the Redeemer for me. She is praying to him from the midst of the pauper remains, among which her own lie confounded. Even so does Lucille's mother and mine rest lost among the preferred of Jesus Christ. God will certainly have been able to recognise my sister, and she, who was so little attached to earth, ought to leave no trace there. She has left me, that sainted genius. Not a day has passed, but I have wept for her. Lucille loved to hide herself. I have made her a solitude in my heart. She shall leave it only when I shall have ceased to live. Those are the true, the only events of my real life. What mattered to me at the moment when I was losing my sister, the thousands of soldiers falling on the battlefields, the destruction of thrones, the changes in the face of the world. Lucille's death struck at the sources of my soul. It was my childhood in the midst of my family, the first vestiges of my existence, that were disappearing. Our life resembles those frail buildings shored up in the sky by flying buttresses. They do not crumble at once, but become loose piecemeal. They still support some gallery or other, while already they have become separated from the chancel or vault of the edifice. Madame de Chateaubriand, still bruised by Lucille's imperious whims, saw only a deliverance for the Christian who had gone to rest in the Lord. Let us be gentle if we would be regretted. The loftiness of genius and the higher qualities are mourned only by the angels but I cannot enter into the consolation of Madame de Chateaubriand. When returning to Paris by the Burgundy Road, I caught sight of the cupola of the Val de Grasse and the Dome of Saint-Geneviève, which overlooks the Jardin des Plantes. My heart was broken, one more companion of my life left on the wayside. We went back to the Hôtel de Coilin, and although Monsieur de Fontaine, Monsieur Joubert, Monsieur de Clausel, Monsieur Mollet, came to spend the evenings with me, I was distraught by so many memories and thoughts that I was utterly exhausted, Remaining alone behind the objects that had quitted me, like a foreign mariner whose engagement has expired, and who has neither home nor country, I struck the shore with my foot. I longed to swim in a new ocean, to refresh myself and cross it. Nursed on Mount Pindus, a crusader, to Hira Salima, I was impatient to go to mingle my loneliness with the ruins of Athens, my tears with those of the Magdalen. I went to see my family in Brittany, returned to Paris, and left for Trieste on the 13th of July, 1806. Madame de Chateaubriand accompanied me as far as Venice, where Monsieur Ballanche came to join her. As my life is set forth hour by hour in the itinéraire, I should have no more to say here if I had not kept some hitherto unknown letters written or received during and after my voyage. Julien, my servant and companion, wrote his own itinerary side by side with mine, just as passengers on a vessel keep their private logs on a journey of discovery. The little manuscript which he places at my disposal will serve as a check upon my narrative. I shall be cook, he will be clerk. In order to bring into clearer light the different manner in which one is impressed according to one's place in the social order and in the intellectual hierarchy, I will mingle my narrative with Julien's. I shall let him begin by speaking first, because he relates some day sailing without me, from Modon to Smyrna. Julien's itinerary. We went on board on Friday, the 1st of August, but, the wind not being favourable to leave harbour, we waited until daybreak the next morning. Then the harbour pilot came to tell us that he could bring us out. 
as i had never been on the sea i had formed an exaggerated idea of the danger for i saw none during two days but on the third a tempest rose lightning thunder and in short a terrible storm attacked us and beat up the sea frightfully our crew consisted of only eight sailors a captain a mate a pilot and a cook and five passengers including monsieur and myself which made seventeen men in all then we all set ourselves to help the seamen in furling the sails in spite of the rain with which we were soon drenched having taken off our coats to move more freely this work filled my thoughts and made me forget the danger which indeed is more terrible through the idea which one forms of it than it is in reality the storms followed one another during two days which seasoned me in my first days of seafaring i was in no way inconvenienced monsieur was afraid lest i should be ill at sea when calm set in again he said to me now i am reassured about your health as you have borne these two stormy days so well you can set your mind at rest as to any other mischance none occurred during the remainder of our crossing to smyrna on the tenth which was a sunday monsieur made them heave to near a turkish town called modon where he landed to go to greece among the passengers who were with us were two milanese who were going to smyrna to follow their trade of tinmen and pewter founders one of the two called joseph spoke the turkish language fairly well and monsieur proposed that he should go with him as servant interpreter and mentions him in his itinerary he told us on leaving us that the journey would only take a few days that he would join the vessel at an island where we were to pass him four or five days and that he would wait for us in that island if he arrived there before us as monsieur found that man to suit him for that short journey he left me on board to continue my voyage to smyrna and to look after all our luggage he had given me a letter of recommendation to the french consul in case he did not join us which was what happened on the fourth day we arrived at the appointed island and monsieur was not there we passed the night and waited for him till seven o'clock in the morning the captain went back on shore to leave word that he was compelled to go on having a fair wind and being obliged to take his crossing into consideration besides he saw a pirate who was trying to approach us and it was urgent that we should place ourselves promptly on the defensive he made the men load his four pieces of cannon and bring on deck his muskets pistols and side-arms but as the wind favoured us the pirate gave us up we arrived on monday the eighteenth at seven o'clock in the evening at the port of smyrna after crossing greece and touching zea and cayo i found julien at smyrna to-day i see greece in my memory as one of those dazzling circles which one sometimes beholds on closing one's eyes against that mysterious phosphorescence are outlying ruins of a delicate and admirable architecture the whole rendered still more resplendent by i know not what brightness of the muses when shall i see again the time of mount hymettus the oleanders of the banks of the eurotas one of the men whom i have left with the greatest envy on foreign shores is the turkish custom-house officer of the piraeus he lived alone the guardian of three deserted ports turning his gaze over bluey isles gleaming promontories golden seas there i heard naught save the sound of the billows in the shattered tomb of themistocles and the murmur of distant memories in the silence of the ruins of sparta fame itself was dumb in the cradle of the melisigeny i left my poor dragoman joseph the milanese at his tinman's shop and set out for constantinople i went to pergamos wishing first to go to troy from motives of poetic piety a fall from my horse awaited me at the commencement of my road not that pegasus stumbled but i slipped i have recalled this accident in my itinerary julien relates it also and he makes remarks concerning the roads and the horses to the exactness of which i can certify julien's itinerary monsieur who had fallen asleep on his horse tumbled off without waking 
his horse stopped forthwith as did mine which followed it i at once alighted to know the reason for it was impossible for me to see it at a fathom's distance i saw monsieur half asleep beside his horse and quite astonished to find himself on the ground he assured me that he had not hurt himself his horse did not try to run away which would have been dangerous for there were precipices very near to the spot where we were on leaving the soma after passing pergamos i had the dispute with my guide which i describe in the itineraire here is julien's version julien's itinerary we left that village very early after renewing our canteen a little way from the village i was greatly surprised to see monsieur angry with our guide i asked him the reason monsieur then told me that he had arranged with the guide at smyrna that he would take him to the plains of troy on the way and that he was now refusing saying that the plains were infested with brigands monsieur declined to believe a word of it and would listen to no one as i saw that he was getting more and more out of temper i made a sign to the guide to come near the interpreter and the janissary to explain to me what he had been told about the dangers to be risked in the plains which monsieur wished to visit the guide told the interpreter that he had been assured that one had to be in great numbers not to be attacked the janissary told me the same thing thereupon i went to monsieur and told him what they had all three said and that besides we should find a little village at a day's march where there was a sort of consul who would be able to inform us of the truth after this statement monsieur composed himself and we continued our road till we reached that place he at once went to the consul who told him of all the dangers he would risk if he persisted in his wish to go in such small numbers to those plains of troy thereupon monsieur was obliged to abandon his project and we continued our road for constantinople i arrived at constantinople my itinerary the almost total absence of women the dearth of wheeled carriages and the packs of ownerless dogs were the three distinctive characteristics that first struck me in this extraordinary town as nearly every one walks in papouches as there is no noise of carriages and carts as there are no bells and scarcely any hammering trades the silence is continual you see around you a voiceless crowd which seems to wish to pass unnoticed and which always looks as though it were stealing away from its master's sight you constantly come to a bazaar or a cemetery as though the turks were only there to buy sell or die their cemeteries unwalled and placed in the middle of the streets are magnificent cypress woods the doves build their nests in the cypress trees and share the peace of the dead here and there one discovers some ancient monuments which have no connection with the modern men nor with the new monuments by which they are surrounded it is as though they had been transported to this eastern town by the working of a talisman no sign of joy no appearance of happiness shows itself to your eyes what you see is not a people but a herd whom an iman drives and a janissary slays amidst the prisons and the jails rises a seraglio the capital of servitude it is there that a sacred guardian carefully preserves the germs of pestilence and the primitive laws of tyranny julien does not soar so near the clouds my itinerary we were about two hundred passengers on the ship men women children and old people as many mats lay ranged in rows on both sides of the steerage in this kind of republic each kept house as he pleased the women looked after their children the men smoked or prepared their dinners the popes talked together on every side was heard the sound of mandolins fiddles and lyres they sang they danced they laughed they prayed everyone was joyful they said to me jerusalem pointing to the south and i replied jerusalem in short but for the fright we should have been the happiest people in the world but at the least wind the seamen furled the sails the pilgrims cried christos kyrie eleison when the storm had passed we resumed our boldness here i am beaten by julien julien's itinerary 
we had to busy ourselves with our departure for jaffa which took place on thursday the eighteenth of september we embarked on board a greek ship where there were at least men women and children one hundred and fifty greeks who were going on a pilgrimage to jerusalem which caused much disturbance on board like the other passengers we too had our supply of provisions and our cooking utensils which i had bought in constantinople i had besides a further and fairly complete supply which m l'ambassadeur had given us consisting of very fine biscuits hams sausages saveloys different sorts of wine rum sugar lemons and even quinine wine against the fever i was therefore furnished with a very plentiful provision which i husbanded and only consumed with great economy knowing that we had more than this one crossing to make everything was locked up where the passengers were not allowed to go our crossing which lasted only thirteen days seemed very long to me through all sorts of unpleasantness and uncleanliness on board during several days of bad weather which we encountered the women and children were sick throwing up everywhere so much so that we were obliged to leave our cabin and sleep on deck there we took our meals much more comfortably than elsewhere as we decided to wait until all our greeks had finished their littering i passed through the dardanelles touched at rhodes and took a pilot for the syrian coast we were stopped by a calm below the asiatic continent almost opposite the old cape caledonia we remained two days at sea without knowing where we were my itinerary the weather was so fine and the air so mild that all the passengers spent the night on deck i had contended for a place on the quarter-deck with two fat caloyers who yielded it to me only after much grumbling i was lying asleep there at six o'clock in the morning on the thirtieth of september when i was aroused by a confused noise of voices i opened my eyes and saw the pilgrims looking towards the prow of the vessel i asked what it was they shouted signor il carmelo mount carmel the wind had risen at eight o'clock the previous evening and we had arrived in sight of the syrian coast during the night as i was sleeping fully dressed i was soon on my feet asking the whereabouts of the sacred mountain every one was eager to point it out to me but i perceived nothing owing to the sun which was beginning to rise opposite to us that moment had about it something religious and august all the pilgrims their beads in their hands had remained silently in the same attitude awaiting the apparition of the holy land the chief of the popes prayed aloud one heard only that prayer and the sound of the running of the vessel which the most favourable wind was impelling across a dazzling sea from time to time a shout rose from the prow when one caught sight of mount carmel again at last i myself perceived the mountain like a round patch beneath the rays of the sun i then went on my knees in the manner of the latins i did not feel the peculiar trouble which i experienced on discovering the coast of greece but the sight of the cradle of the israelites and the native land of the christians filled me with joy and respect i was about to step upon the land of prodigies near the sources of the most astounding poetry in the region where even humanly speaking the greatest event took place that ever changed the face of the world the wind dropped at noon it rose again at four o'clock but through the ignorance of the pilot we went beyond our aim at two o'clock in the afternoon we saw jaffa again a boat left the shore with three monks i stepped into the launch with them we entered the harbour through an opening effected between the rocks and dangerous even for a ship's boat the arabs on the beach came out into the water to their waists in order to take us on their shoulders then there followed a rather laughable scene my servant was dressed in a whitish frock-coat white being the colour of distinction among the arabs they deemed that julien was the sheikh they caught hold of him and carried him off in triumph despite his protest while thanks to my blue coat i made my escape humbly on the back of a ragged beggar now let us hear julien the principal actor in the scene julien's itinerary 
what surprised me greatly was to see six arabs come to carry me on land while there were only two for monsieur which amused him much to see me carried like a reliquary i do not know whether my apparel seemed to them more brilliant than monsieur's he wore a brown frock-coat and buttons of the same mine was whitish with buttons of white metal which gave off a certain gleam in the bright sunshine this may no doubt have caused the mistake we went on wednesday the first of october to the monks of jaffa who belonged to the order of cordeliers speaking latin and italian but very little french they received us very well and did all that in them lay to procure for us all we needed i arrived in jerusalem on the advice of the fathers of the convent i passed quickly through the holy city to go to the jordan after stopping at the monastery at bethlehem i set out with an arab escort i stopped at st savas at midnight i found myself on the shore of the dead sea my itinerary when one travels in judea at first the heart is seized with a great sense of tediousness but when as you pass from solitude to solitude space stretches limitless before your eyes that feeling gradually wears away and you experience a secret terror which far from casting down the soul gives courage and raises the spirit extraordinary views discover on every side a land laboured by miracles the burning sun the swooping eagle the barren fig-tree all the poetry all the scenes of the scriptures are there every name contains a mystery every grotto declares the future every summit resounds with the prophet's accents god himself has spoken on those shores the dried-up torrents the cleft rocks the half-open tombs testify to the working of wonders the desert appears to be still mute with terror and it is as though it had not ventured to break the silence since it heard the voice of the almighty we descended from the brow of the mountain in order to go to spend the night on the shore of the dead sea and next to go up to the jordan we broke up our camp and made our way for an hour and a half with excessive difficulty through a fine white dust we were proceeding towards a small wood of balsam trees and tamarinds which i saw to my great astonishment rising from the midst of a sterile soil suddenly the bethlehemites stopped and pointed to something which i had not perceived at the bottom of a ravine without being able to say what it was i caught a glimpse as though of a kind of sand moving over the immobility of the soil i approached this singular object and i saw a yellow river which i had some difficulty in distinguishing from the sand of its two banks it was deeply embanked and flowed slowly in a thick stream it was the jordan the bethlehemites stripped and plunged into the jordan i did not dare to follow their lead because of the fever which still troubled me we returned to jerusalem julien was not much struck with the sacred places like a true philosopher he was dry i left jerusalem arrived at jaffa and took ship for alexandria from alexandria i went to cairo and i left julien with m Drovetti, who had the kindness to charter an austrian vessel for me for tunis julien continued his journal at alexandria they are jews here he says who gamble in stocks as they do wherever they are half a league from the city stands pompey's column which is in reddish granite mounted on a block of hewn stone my itinerary on the twenty-third of november at midday the wind having become favourable i went on board the vessel i embraced m drovetti on the shore and we made mutual promises of friendship and remembrance i am paying my debt to-day we heaved the anchor at two o'clock a pilot brought us out of harbour the wind was faint and southerly we kept for three days within sight of pompey's column which we discovered on the horizon on the evening of the third day we heard the evening gun of the port of alexandria this was as it were the signal for our definite departure for the north wind rose and we made sail for the west on the first of december the wind veering due west stopped our way 
Gradually it fell to the southwest and turned into a tempest, which did not cease until we reached Tunis. To occupy my time, I copied out and set in order my notes on this voyage and my descriptions for the martyrs. At night I walked the deck with the mate, Captain Dinelli. Nights spent amid the waves on a vessel beaten by the storm are not barren. The uncertainty of our future gives objects their true value. The land, contemplated from the midst of a tempestuous sea, resembles life as it presents itself to a man about to die. We continued our voyage and anchored before the Kirkenna Isles. My itinerary. A gale rose, to our great delight, from the south-east, and in five days we arrived in the waters of the island of Malta. We came into sight of it on Christmas Eve, but on Christmas Day the wind, shifting to west-northwest, drove us to the south of Lampedusa. We remained for eighteen days off the east coast of the kingdom of Tunis, between life and death. I shall never in my life forget the day of the twenty-eighth. We cast anchor before the Kirkenna Isles. For eight days we lay at anchor in the Gulf of Cabes, where I saw the commencement of the year 1807. Under how many planets, and amid what varied fortunes, had I already seen the years renew for me, years which pass so quickly, or which are so long? How far away from me were those times of my childhood in which, with a heart beating with joy, I received the paternal blessing and the paternal gifts? How I used to look forward to New Year's Day! And now, on a foreign vessel in the middle of the sea, within sight of a barbarous land, that New Year's Day sped for me without witnesses, without pleasures, without the kisses of my family, without the fond wishes of happiness which a mother shapes with such sincerity for her sons. That day, born in the womb of the tempest, let fall on my head naught but cares, regrets, and silver hairs. Julien is exposed to the same fate, and he rebukes me for one of those fits of impatience of which I have, fortunately, corrected myself. Julien's Itinerary we were very near the island of Malta, and we had reason to fear that we might be seen by some English vessel, which could have forced us to enter the harbour, but we encountered none. Our crew was greatly exhausted, and the wind continued to be unfavourable to us. The captain, seeing on his chart an anchorage called Kirkenna, from which we were at no great distance, made sail for it, without telling Monsieur, who, seeing that we were approaching that anchorage, became angry at not having been consulted, and said to the captain that he ought to continue his course, having been through worse weather but we had gone too far to resume our course and besides the captain's prudence was highly approved for that night the wind grew much stronger and the sea very bad finding that we were obliged to remain in the anchoring-place four-and-twenty hours longer than was foreseen monsieur gave the captain lively marks of his discontent in spite of the good reasons which the latter gave him we had been a month at sea and we only wanted seven or eight hours to reach the port of tunis suddenly the wind became so violent that we were obliged to stand out to sea and we remained three weeks without being able to touch the port. Thereupon Monsieur once more reproached the captain with having wasted thirty-six hours at the anchorage. It was impossible to persuade him that a greater misfortune would have befallen us if the captain had been less foreseeing. The misfortune which I anticipated was to see our provisions diminishing, without knowing when we should arrive. At last I trod Carthaginian soil. I found the most generous hospitality at the hands of Monsieur and Madame de Voise. Julien describes my host well, he also speaks of the country and the Jews. They pray and weep, says he. An American man-of-war brig gave me a passage on board, and I crossed the lake of Tunis to go to the port. On the way, says Julien, I asked Monsieur if he had taken the gold which he had put into the writing-table in his bedroom. He told me he had forgotten it, and I was obliged to return to Tunis. I can never keep money in my mind. When I arrived from Alexandria, we cast anchor opposite the ruins of the city of Hannibal. I looked at them from the deck without guessing what they were. 
I saw a few Moorish huts, a Mussulman hermitage on the point of a prominent headland, some sheep grazing among ruins, ruins so unapparent that I could hardly distinguish them from the ground on which they stood. That was Carthage. I visited it before embarking for Europe. My itinerary. From the top of Bursa, the eye embraces the ruins of Carthage, which are more numerous than is generally believed. They resemble those of Sparta, having nothing in a good state of preservation, but occupying a considerable space. I saw them in the month of February. The fig-trees, olive-trees, and carobs were already putting out their young leaves. Large angelicas and acanthus formed tufts of verdure among the ruins of marble of every colour. In the distance I turned my gaze over the isthmus, a twofold sea, far islands, a smiling countryside, bluey lakes, azured mountains. I described forests, ships, aqueducts, Moorish villages, Mohammedan hermitages, minarets, and the white houses of Tunis. Millions of starlings, gathered into battalions and resembling clouds, flew above my head. Surrounded by the greatest and most touching memories, I thought of Dido, of Sophonisba, of Hasdrubal's noble spouse. I viewed the vast plains in which the legions of Hannibal, Scipio, and Caesar lie buried. My eyes tried to recognize the site of the palace of Utica. Alas, the remains of the palace of Tiberius still exist at Capri, and we look in vain at Utica for the spot where stood Cato's house. Lastly, the terrible vandals, the light moors, passed in turn before my memory, which showed me as a final picture St. Louis dying on the ruins of Carthage. Julien, like myself, takes his last view of Africa at Carthage. Julien briefly narrates our passage from Tunis to the Bay of Gibraltar. From Algeciras he promptly arrives at Cadiz, and from Cadiz at Granada. Careless of Blanca, he observes only that the Alhambra and other lofty buildings stand on rocks of immense height. My own itinerary does not give many more details on Granada. I content myself with saying, the Alhambra seems to me to be worthy of note, even after the temples of Greece. The valley of Granada is delightful, and much resembles that of Sparta. It is easy to conceive that the Moors regret so fine a country. I have described the Alhambra in the Dernier des Abonserrages. The Alhambra, the Generalife, the Monte Santo are impressed upon my mind, like those fantastic landscapes of which often, at peep of day, one imagines that one catches a glimpse in the first brilliant ray of the dawn. I still feel that I possess sufficient sense of nature to paint the vega, but I should not dare to attempt it for fear of the Archbishop of Granada. During my stay in the town of the Sultanas, a guitar player, driven by an earthquake from a village through which I had just passed, had devoted himself to me. Deaf as a post, he followed me wherever I went. When I sat down on a ruin in the Palace of the Moors, he stood and sang by my side, accompanying himself on his guitar. The harmonious vagrant would not perhaps have composed the symphony of the creation, but his dusky skin showed through his tattered cloak, and he would have had a great need to write, as did Beethoven, to Fräulein Breuning. Revered Eleonora, my dearest friend, how gladly would I be the possessor of a rabbit's wool waistcoat of your knitting! I travel from end to end of that Spain in which, sixteen years later, heaven reserved to me a great part, that of aiding in stamping our anarchy in a noble nation and delivering a Bourbon. The honour of our arms was restored, and I should have saved the legitimacy had the legitimacy been able to understand the conditions of its continuance. Julien does not allow me to escape until he has brought me back to the Place Louis XV at three o'clock in the afternoon of the 5th of June, 1807. From Granada he conducts me to Aranjuez, to Madrid, to the Escorial, whence he jumps to Bayonne. We left Bayonne, he says, on Tuesday the 9th of May for Pau, Tarbes, Marège, and Bordeaux, where we arrived on the 18th, very tired, and both with a touch of fever. We left on the 19th and went to Angoulême and Tours, 
and we arrived on the twenty-eighth at Blois, where we slept. On the thirty-first we continued our journey to Orléans, and later we spent our last night at Angerville. I was there at one stage from a country seat whose inhabitants my long voyage had not caused me to forget. But the gardens of Armida, where were they? Two or three times, when returning to the Pyrenees, I have caught sight of the column of Maryville, like Pompey's column. It acquainted me with the presence of the desert. Like my fortunes at sea, all has changed. I reached Paris before the news I sent of myself. I had outdistanced my life. Insignificant as are the letters which I wrote, I go through them as one looks over inferior sketches representing the places one has visited. Those notes dated from Modon, Athens, Zaire, Constantinople, Jaffa, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Tunis, Granada, Madrid, and Burgos, those lines written on every manner of paper with every manner of ink, carried by all the winds, interest me. I love unrolling even my very firmans. It is a pleasure to me to touch the vellum, to observe the elegant calligraphy, to wonder at the pomp of the style. How great a personage I must have been! And what poor devils we are, with our letters and our forty sous passports, beside those lords of the turban. Osman Said, Pasha of Morea, thus addresses to whomsoever it may concern my firman for Athens. Men of law of the townships of Misitra and Argos, Cadis, Nadias, and Effendis, of whom may the wisdom ever increase, you who are the honour of your peers and our great men, by Vodes, and you through whose eyes your master sees, who replace him in each of your jurisdictions, public officers and businessmen, whose credit can only grow greater. We inform you that of the nobles of France, one noble in particular from Paris, the bearer of this order, accompanied by an armed janissary and by a servant as his escort, has solicited permission and explained his intention to pass through some of the places and localities which are within your jurisdictions, in order to go to Athens, which is an isthmus lying beyond and separated from your jurisdictions. Wherefore, Effendis, Vivodes, and all others above mentioned, when the aforesaid person shall arrive at the places subject to your jurisdiction, you shall take the greatest care that he be treated with all the particular consideration of which friendship makes a law, etc., etc. Year 1221 of the Hegira. My passport from Constantinople for Jerusalem says, To the sublime tribunal of his grandeur, the Cadi of Kuds, Sheriff, and most excellent Effendi. Most excellent Effendi, may your grandeur seated on your august tribunal accept our sincere blessings and our affectionate greetings. We inform you that a noble personage from the court of France, named François-Auguste de Chateaubriand, is at present on his way towards you to make the holy pilgrimage of the Christians. Would we extend a like protection to the unknown traveller with the mayors and gendarmes who inspect his passport? In these firmans we can also read the revolutions of the nations. How many permits has it required that God should grant to the empires before a Tartar slave could lay orders upon a vivoda misistra, that is, a magistrate of Sparta, before a Mussulman could recommend a Christian to the Cadi of Kuds, that is, of Jerusalem? The itinerary has entered into the elements that compose my life. When I set out in 1806, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem appeared a great undertaking. Now that the crowd has followed in my steps, and that the whole world is in the diligence, the wonder of it has vanished. I have little left of my own, save Tunis. People have travelled less in that direction, and it has been allowed that I pointed out the real sights of the ports of Carthage. This creditable letter proves it. Monsieur le Vicomte, I have just received a plan of the ground and ruins of Carthage, giving the exact outlines and inclinations of the soil. It has been taken trigonometrically, on a basis of 1,500 metres, and rests upon barometrical observations made with corresponding barometers. It is a work of ten years of precision and patience, and it confirms your opinions regarding the position of the ports of Bursa. 
with this exact plan i have gone over all the ancient texts and have i believe determined the outer circumference and the other portions of the cothon bursa megara etc etc i wish to do you the right which is your due upon so many scores if you are not afraid to see me swoop down upon your genius with my trigonometry and my heavy erudition i will be with you at the first sign from yourself if we my father and i follow you in literature longissimo intervallo at least we shall have tried to imitate you in the noble independence of which you set france so fine an example Duro de la main so accurate a rectification of localities would formerly have been sufficient to give me a name in geography from this time forward if i still had a mania for being talked about i do not know where i could go in order to attract the attention of the public perhaps i should resume my old plan of discovering the passage to the north pole perhaps i should ascend the ganges there i should see the long straight dark line of the woods which defend the approach to the himalayas when after reaching the neck which joins the two principal peaks of mount gango i described the immeasurable amphitheatre of the eternal snows and should ask my guides as did heber the anglican bishop of calcutta the name of the other mountains in the east they would reply that they marked the border of the chinese empire well and good but to return from the pyramids is as though you returned from montlhery by the by i remember that a pious antiquary who lived near saint-denis in france wrote to me to ask if pontoise did not resemble jerusalem the last page of the itinerary is as though i had written it this moment so exactly does it reproduce my present sentiments for twenty years i said i have devoted myself to study amid hazards and troubles of every kind diversa exilia a desertas quaerere terras many of the pages of my books have been written under canvas in the deserts upon the ocean i have often held the pen without knowing how i should for a few instants prolong my existence if heaven grant me a repose which i have never tasted i will try in silence to raise a monument to my country if providence refuse me that repose i must think only of shielding my last days from the cares which have embittered the first i am no longer young i no longer have the love of fame i know that literature the commerce of which is so sweet when it is secret only draws down storms upon us from the outside in any case i have written enough if my name is to live far too much if it is to die it is possible that my itinerary may survive as a manual for the use of wandering jews like myself i have scrupulously noted the halting-places and drawn a map of the roads all travellers to jerusalem have written to congratulate me and thank me for my accuracy i will quote one witness i see before me of the sites of syria egypt and carthage only the spots in harmony with my solitary nature these please me independently of antiquity art or history the pyramids struck me not so much on account of their size as of the desert against which they were set diocletian's column did not catch my eye as did the segments of the sea along the sands of libya at the pelusian mouth of the nile i should not have wished for a monument to remind me of the scene thus depicted by plutarch the enfranchised slave casting his eyes over the shore spied the old remains of a fishing-boat which though not large would make a sufficient pile for a poor naked body that was not quite entire while he was collecting the pieces of plank and putting them together an old roman who had made some of his first campaigns under pompey came up and said to philip who are you that are preparing the funeral of pompey the great philip answered i am his freedman but you shall not said the old roman have this honour entirely to yourself as a work of piety offers itself let me have a share in it that i may not absolutely repent my having passed so many years in a foreign country but to compensate many misfortunes may have the consolation of doing some of the last honours to the greatest general rome ever produced caesar's rival no longer has a tomb near libya 
and a young libyan slave-girl has received burial at the hands of pompey not far from the room whence the great pompey was banished from these freaks of fortune one conceives how the christians used to go and hide themselves in the tibaid the winds have scattered the personages of europe asia africa amid whom i appeared and of whom i have told you one fell from the acropolis at athens another from the shore of chios another flung himself from mount zion yet another will never emerge from the waves of the nile or the tanks of carthage the places themselves have changed in the same way as in america cities have sprung up where i saw forests an empire is being formed on those sands of egypt where my eyes encountered only horizons bare and rounded like the boss of a shield as the arab poems say and wool so thin that their jaws are like a cleft stick greece has recovered the liberty which i wished her when travelling across her under the guard of a janissary but does she enjoy her national liberty or has she merely changed her yoke in some measure i am the last visitor of the turkish empire under its old customs the revolutions which have everywhere immediately preceded or followed upon my footsteps have spread over greece syria egypt is a new east about to be formed what will it bring forth shall we receive our just punishment for having taught the modern art of warfare to nations whose social state is based upon slavery and polygamy have we carried civilization beyond our boundaries or have we brought barbarism within the circle of christianity what will result from the new interests the new political relations the creation of the powers which may spring up in the levant no one can tell i do not allow myself to be dazzled by steamboats and railways by the sale of the produce of manufactures and by the fortunes of a few french english german italian soldiers enrolled in a pasha's service all that is not civilization perhaps we shall behold the return through the aid of the disciplined troops of future ibrahims of the perils which threaten europe at the time of charles the hammer and from which we were saved by the generous poland i pity the travellers who shall succeed me the harem will no longer hide its secrets from them they will not have seen the old sun of the east and the turban of mohammed the little bedouin called out to me in french when i passed into the mountains of judea forward march the order was given and the east marched what became of yulcy's companion julien he asked when handing me his manuscript to be made concierge of my house in the rue d'enfer this place was occupied by an old porter and his family whom i could not send away the wrath of heaven having made julien headstrong and a drunkard i supported him for a long time at last we were obliged to part i gave him a small sum and granted him a little pension on my privy purse a somewhat light one but always copiously filled with excellent notes mortgaged on my castles in spain i obtained julien's admission at his wish to the old men's asylum there he finished the last great journey i shall soon go to occupy his empty bed even as in the camp of etnia capi i slept on a mat from which a plague-stricken mussulman had just been removed my vocation is positively for the almshouse in which the old society lies it pretends to live but is none the less at death's door when it has expired it will decompose in order to be reproduced under new forms but it must first succumb the first necessity for peoples as for man is to die when god bloweth there cometh frost says job end of book four part two end of the memoirs of chateaubriand volume two by francois rene de chateaubriand translated by alexander texera de matos